Bismillahirrahmanirrahim Alhamdulillah Nahmaduhu wa nasti'ainuhu wa nasti'ainuhu Wa na'udhu billahi min syururi anfusina Wa min sayyati a'malina Man yahdihillahu falamudillalah Wa man yudlilhu falahadiyalah Wa ashadu an la ilaha illallah Wahdahu la sharika lah Wa ashadu anna muhammadan abduhu Wa rasuluh sallallahu alayhi Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi Wa sallama tasliman kathira Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu Attaqu allaha haqqa tuqatihi Wa la tamutunna illa wa antum muslimun Ya أيها الناس اتقوا ربكم الذي خلقكم من نفس واحدة وخلق منها زوجها وبث منهما رجالا كثيرا ونساء واتقوا الله الذي تساءلون به والأرحام إن الله كان عليكم رقيبا يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله وقولوا قولا سديدا يصلح لكم أعمالكم ويغفر لكم ذنوبكم ومن يطع الله ورسوله فقد فاز فوزا عظيما أما بعد فإن أصلق الحديث كتاب الله سبحانه وتعالى وخير الهدي هدي محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وشر الأمور محدثاتها وكل محدثة بدعة وكل بدعة ضلالة وكل ضلالة في النار ثم أما بعد One of the great imams of the Salaf by the name of Sufyan al-Thawri rahimahullah ta'ala made a profound statement where he said that indeed the angels are the protectors and the guardians of the heavens and the skies and indeed it is the scholars of hadith who are the protectors and the guardians of this religion. Now keeping this statement in mind, I recollected the first years when I was at the University of Medina and I remembered the first book of hadith that we studied was the book of Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala. And as we took this book, we took the biography of the Imam and I was truly amazed. You know, with this book, my enthusiasm for studying hadith increased. And in my mind, I thought that when, inshallah, when I have children, I want my children to be like Imam al-Bukhari. So I thought with that in mind that today would be an ideal day to take the life of Imam al-Bukhari. As we know, the book of Imam al-Bukhari is the most authentic book after the Quran. And his seerah or his biography requires a bit more time than all the other biographies uh, which, will be, which we will be taking. On Sunday, the schedule uh, is as follows, that we're taking an introduction to the sunnah of the Prophet And the second and third lectures will be those people that preserve the sunnah of the Prophet So in them, we will be taking the authors of the six books of hadith. From them is Imam al-Bukhari, Imam Muslim, Al-Tirmidhi, Abu Dawood, Al-Nasai, and Ibn Majah. Whereas the life of Imam al-Bukhari, as I mentioned, requires a bit more time, so I thought we would dedicate a separate lecture to it, as there are a lot more benefits or fawaid uh, related to it. So firstly, starting with the name of Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he was Abu Abdullah, Muhammad ibn Ismail, Ibn Ibrahim, Ibn Al-Mughira, Ibn Al-Bardazba, Al-Bukhari. And he was born in the month of Shawwal in the year 194. Now, the birth of Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala was nothing miraculous. He was born as your regular child, brought into this world with two parents. And as he grew older, around the age of three, his father passed away. 
Now, before actually getting into the life of Imam al-Bukhari, let us take a brief look at the life of his father, as the role of the father in the life of a child is something magnificent, you know. A child who is usually brought up without both parents, they usually consider to have an abnormal life or an abnormal aptitude. Whereas you see in the case of Imam al-Bukhari, this is not the case. But again, let us take a brief look at the life of the father of Imam al-Bukhari. So who was the life who was the father of Imam al-Bukhari? Anyone know his name? I just mentioned his whole lineage. I know. The father of Imam al-Bukhari was Ismail. Now, one of the great scholars of hadith by the name of Ibn Habban, he has a book called Athiqat. And in this book, Athiqat, he mentions all of the narrators from the time of the Tabi'een up until his time who are considered trustworthy, meaning that they're reliable in the science of hadith and you can narrate from them. And in this book of his, he mentioned the father of Imam al-Bukhari, Ismail ibn Ibrahim. And he mentioned that he was a trustworthy scholar of hadith and he was someone who was renowned for his knowledge. And likewise, he was also someone whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had blessed with a lot of wealth, meaning that he was a successful businessman. And in this portion, when discussing his business, he mentions a profound statement. And in it he mentions that the most beloved thing to me is my family. And just like I love for myself that I only intake that which is halal from the risk of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, likewise I love for my family that they should have nothing but a halal risk. So he was someone who was more cautious in his business transactions. And we see that this indirectly had an effect on the life of Imam al-Bukhari. As we know from the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, narrated by Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, rhetorically and rebukingly, that how will Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answer the dua of a person whose food is haram and his wealth is haram and that which he takes is haram. So obviously we know that there is a dimension to our wealth and to our risk which is considered from the ilm al-ghayb, meaning that a man may have $10 and another man may have $10. But this first man is able to do with his $10 that which the second man can't. And this is what we call barakah, meaning that the blessing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts in it. So the role of the father of Imam al-Bukhari was something huge, meaning that his fear of not taking wealth which is haram and him being cautious about this had an influence of on Imam al-Bukhari indirectly. Meaning that through his fear, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala placed extra barakah. And again, we will see this later on in uh, as we continue with the life of Imam al-Bukhari, how Imam al-Bukhari was blessed with this wealth, that he made such a statement that I spend each month after he started his studying of religious uh, knowledge, that I spend each month 500 dirhams in the seeking of knowledge, either in buying books or either in traveling or either supporting another student of knowledge who doesn't have the money. So we see that the barakah in one's wealth goes uh, a long way. But again, it starts off with our parents. And likewise, when we one day become parents, our children will be affected by the way we earned our risk as well and the way we lived our lives as well. And another relationship that we can establish over here is how 
a child will look up to its father. And what we mean by this is that if you look at a lot of the scholars of hadith, a lot of their parents were scholars or and righteous people. So when you think about how you want your children to become righteous, one of the best ways to do this is to set an example for them. Don't expect a sweet fruit from a sour tree. Meaning that if you plant the seeds of righteousness and the seeds of sweetness, likewise the fruit will be sweet. So everything starts with your own self. If you want your children to be righteous, your children will look up to you and they will follow you and they will emulate your way. So set that example for them. Take them to the masjid while they are young and you yourself go to the masjid and likewise read the Quran in front of them. Teach them how to pray salah at a young age and the importance of salah. And likewise, include them in your other acts of worship. Don't exclude them. A lot of us have this idea that, you know, up until the age of 10, we're not going to bring our children to the masjid. This type of ideology or this type of understanding is something which is totally incorrect. The companions of the Prophet ﷺ used to bring their children to the masjid at all times. Take the ideal example of Al-Hassan and Al-Hussein the grandchildren of the Prophet ﷺ. It is mentioned in the Sahih of Imam Al-Bukhari Rahimahullah Ta'ala that one day he delayed the prostration in Salah for such a long time that the companions thought that the Prophet had passed away in his Salah. So after waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, the Prophet finally gets up from sujood and they ask him after the Salah, Ya Rasulullah, what was it that caused you to delay your Salah or your sajda for so long? To which the Prophet said that Al-Hassan and Al-Hussein were playing on me and they didn't want to disturb their playing. So I delayed my sajda until they were done and that's when I got up. This was the aptitude or the manhaj of the Prophet that a lot of us when we see children playing in the masjid, we get angry sometimes to such a degree that we'll even hit them. But this is not the way to teach our children. Have mercy with them, be kind to them, be gentle with them and raise them upon softness and inshallah they will grow up to be righteous and obedient individuals. So this was the father of Imam Bukhari and the two characteristics we established from here were that he was a scholar of hadith and thus Imam al-Bukhari, even though he only passed away at the age of three, Imam al-Bukhari retained this memory and likewise followed in his footsteps. And point number two was that the father of Imam al-Bukhari was a businessman who feared Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and abstained from those transactions that had any doubts and he abstained from cheating people and thus he only took in income which was halal and thus Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put barakah or blessing in that wealth and thus Imam al-Bukhari as we will come to see was sustained through the wealth of his father even though he passed away at the age of three. So now how did the childhood of Imam al-Bukhari pass and go by? Imam al-Bukhari obviously became to be known as a very famous scholar and when you become very famous and you know you busy yourself with ilm and with knowledge you don't have the time to do everything you'd like to do and one of these things was writing Imam al-Bukhari didn't have time to write so what he did was he hired what they call a warraq or a person who is a scribe who writes down everything you say and his name was Muhammad ibn Abi Hatim, the son of the great scholar Abu Hatim. 
So Muhammad ibn Abi Hajjim, when he was with Imam al-Bukhari one day, he asks him, you know, how did your affair in seeking knowledge begin? What happened? So he mentions that it was at the age of 10 that he was sitting in the masjid and he was listening to the scholars of hadith and he had this natural inclination in memorizing what they were saying, that he was able to retain everything they said, you know, to a very extensive degree and very accurately and very meticulously. So by the age of 10, he said, after I attended some of these halaqat, I started picking up their books and I started reading and I started memorizing. And by the age of 10, I had finished memorizing the books of Ibn al-Mubarak and al-Waqi'ah ibn al-Jarrah. Now Ibn al-Mubarak and al-Waqi'ah ibn al-Jarrah were great imams of their own time. So one of the things we learned from this particular point is the importance of understanding and memorizing. When you look at the difference between the scholastic education between the East and the West, you notice one profound difference, and that is the emphasis that is portrayed on memorizing in the East. Meaning that when you study in the East, a lot of emphasis is put upon memorizing. That all of the books that you have, the vast majority of the things you're required to memorize, you won't get anywhere without memorizing. Whereas education in the West, a lot of it is theoretical understanding. That as long as you understand the concepts pertaining to it, then you're able to do well in school. And as a Muslim or as an educator, you will come to see that when you have your own children or when you give da'wah to people, or even if you you know become a teacher at a school, that the best way to teach people is to give them both. That you emphasize memorizing and as well as emphasizing understanding. And one thing you will come to realize is that true understanding cannot come except with memorizing. And this is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when He talks about the Qur'an, this is in a hadith Qudsi, and in regular hadith that the Prophet narrates, that when he talks about the people of understanding, it is usually people who have memorized it. As we see in the hadith of the Hajjatul Wida' or the farewell pilgrimage of the Prophet that he said that those of you who hear it, then let him pass it on to those of those, to those people who weren't present. And one of the narrations of this hadith, the Prophet he mentions how that a person may hear something and relate it to someone who has a better understanding than him. And thus, you know, um, he may bless you with his understanding or grant you that understanding that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed him with. So we see again this great understanding of Imam al-Bukhari, his understanding of hadith, it didn't come just by reading and you know learning the names of the narrators and devising formulas of the narrators, which can be done, you know. You nowadays you have programs where you put in the names of the narrators and I'll tell you if it's an authentic chain or not. You know, this is not how Imam al-Bukhari did it, but rather at the young age he started memorizing the books of hadith. Now another thing to keep in mind was that the scholars of the past they didn't pursue the knowledge of other sciences like aqidah or fiqh or usul al-fiqh or you know extensive studying of the lugha until they had memorized the Quran. Every single scholar of the past emphasized first on memorizing the Quran as it is the most noblest books and it is the most truest of speech and it is the very speech of our creator subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is what every single scholar would begin with and this is what each and every uh, parent would induce into their children and in, uh, make them enthusiastic to learn. Now 
before we continue with this point, I actually may, uh, forgot a very important point, and that was the mother of Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala. Um, when Imam al-Bukhari was born, he was born, alhamdulillah, with good eyesight. But as he grew older, his eyesight began to weaken uh, to such a degree that he became blind. And this disturbed his mother, you know, to a very painful degree, to, that, to such a degree that she would cry and make dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all the time. But not a prayer would pass, not a time where she knew that the dua would be answered would pass, except that she made dua for her son, that he would have his eyesight back or it should, it should be returned to him. So one day while she was sleeping, um, she narrates that Ibrahim salam, the Khalil of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the noble prophet, who is also known as the father of the Anbiya or the father of the prophets, came to her in a dream and he said to her that indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has heard your call, meaning he has heard your supplication. And it is due to your extensive crying and your extensive supplication that today your dua will be answered. And when she awoke, the eyesight of Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala was returned. And like we mentioned, today's lecture and today's topic is about the lessons we can derive from the life of Imam al-Bukhari. So one of the lessons that we derive from this is the importance of supplicating for our family members and especially for our children. That each and every one of us wants success for our children. One of the best ways to do it is to supplicate for them. As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala answers the dua of the parents for their children. And this is something which we see from the life of Imam al-Bukhari. That's something great like losing your eyesight where people will have surgery upon surgery upon surgery to try to fix and cure. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala fixed through the dua of the mother. So this is another important lesson. So now getting back to the age of 10, he mentions that at the age of 10, and this was obviously after having memorized the Quran, he said, I memorized the books of Ibn al-Mubarak and al-Buqiyah. So now at the age of 11, you know, this is one long conversation that he's having with Muhammad ibn Abi Hatim, his scribe. You know, this is a series of questions and answers, I guess you could say, that they're continuing this discussion. And so Muhammad ibn Abi Hatim asks him, you know, and what happened next? What, what did you do next? And he mentions at the age of 11, he started sitting uh, with scholars and becoming their students, meaning that he would stick to them as much as he could. He would choose a sheikh and a masjid and attend all his halaqat and all of his durus. So one of these scholars that he stuck to was a scholar by the name of Ad-Dakhili. That was his name, Ad-Dakhili. So one day while he was sitting um, in this dars of Ad-Dakhili, Ad-Dakhili mentioned a hadith. And when we study a hadith, you know that a hadith has two parts to it, the matan and the sanad. The matan is actually the actual statement of the Prophet Like the famous hadith, that actions are but by intentions, this would be called the matan of the hadith. Then you have the sanad of the hadith. And the sanad of the hadith is the chain of narrators. So the chain of narrators from this hadith, you have Amr ibn al-Khattab to Al-Qamr ibn al-Waqqas to Muhammad ibn Ibrahim al-Taymi and so on. So all these people are considered the narrators or the what they call the Ruwat, which is the plural and the singular is Rawi. 
So the great Imam or the teacher of Imam al-Bukhari al-Dakhili was mentioning a hadith. And when he got to the Senate, he said that Ibrahim narrated from Abu Zubair who narrated from uh, Sufyan. So when Imam al-Bukhari heard this, he rebuked his shaykh and he said, you know, this hadith was not narrated in this form or manner. Now imagine an 11-year-old kid. It's like one of these children in the back coming up to me right now and saying that, you know, what you're saying is incorrect. Obviously, this would be, you know, astounding to a lot of people that where is this child come from? Who does he think he is that you have an old man in his 60s and then you have Imam al-Bukhari at the age of 11 rebuking the sheikh and scholar. So Imam al-Bukhari being very persistent, he said, what you have said is incorrect. And he kept on challenging the sheikh to such a degree where he said that if you don't believe what I'm saying, that your senate or your chain of narration is incorrect, then go back to your books and see what is what is said. So obviously, al-Dakhili being challenged by this child, you know, he takes it quite seriously. And he goes back to his library and brings out the book. And then he looks in the book and he notices that what Imam al-Bukhari said was correct. That it wasn't narrated by Abu Zubair. So now Imam al-Dakhili, he wants to get revenge on Imam al-Bukhari. He's like, okay, fine. You know, so it wasn't Abu Zubair. Why don't you tell me who it was? And he's thinking, 11-year-old kid, might have been a fluke, he got it right. But Imam Bukhari, you know, he wasn't your average child. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had raised him to a high degree even at this young age. So Imam Bukhari said that this hadith was narrated by uh, Abu Zubair's son, Zubair, and not by Abu Zubair. So there on in, you know, Ad-Dakhili became very impressed with Imam al-Bukhari and he got him to check all of his works and attend all of his halaqat and correct him um, wherever he made mistakes. So life goes on for, for Imam al-Bukhari and he continues his discussion with Muhammad ibn Abi Hatim and he goes on to tell him that at the age of 16 he went uh, to make Hajj with his mother and his brother. Imam al-Bukhari had a brother named Ahmad whom we know nothing about except for this one story that at the age of 16 Imam al-Bukhari went out with him and his, their mother and they made Hajj uh, when Imam al-Bukhari was 16. So at the age of 16, his mother knew that you know Imam al-Bukhari wasn't your average child. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had raised his status and had blessed him. You know, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says uh, at the end of Surah Al-Mujadalah, That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will raise amongst you those people uh, who have been granted knowledge and have been granted Iman. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will raise them in status. So this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did with Imam al-Bukhari. So his mother recognized this and when they went to the land of Hijaz, you know, Mecca, Medina, uh, Ta'if and Jeddah and these areas, she noticed that Imam al-Bukhari had this natural inclination for hadith and she said, you know, this is something you like to do, why don't you stay behind? Why don't you stay behind and study with the scholars over here? Now, you know, the average mother at the age of 16, she wouldn't trust her child to you know, take care of his own affairs at the age of 16. Many of our parents will reach the age of 19, 20, 21, even 22, and they're still skeptical to, you know, give us $20. We don't know what, what he's going to do with it. But the mother of Imam al-Bukhari showed that trust, showed that trust in Imam al-Bukhari and said, why don't you stay behind? Take this, you know, 
bag of wealth and stay behind and take care of yourself and support yourself and study with the scholars over here. So at the age of 16, Imam al-Bukhari studied with the scholars of Hijaz. Now, this is another turning point or milestone in the life of Imam al-Bukhari. That at the age of 16, Imam al-Bukhari is being exposed to the concept of traveling. Now, why do I call traveling a concept? As you will come to see when you study the biographies of many scholars of the past, that all of them traveled for the sake of knowledge. None of them actually just stayed in their cities and were sufficed with it. But rather they wanted to go to the very cities and study with the best of the scholars. So this is another interesting point over here. That when studying a science or studying any form of knowledge, one should always go to the best of the people. And the reason why we say this is because not only will you be, will be, will you be learning from the most educated and the most proficient person in that science, but also you will be exposed to various things, various cultures, various personalities, various manners from the people. And thus this will open and expand your understanding of people, your understanding of the implementation of the deen, and will also increase you in uh, patience and perseverance. And this is something which is very important for the student of knowledge, that you will not become a true student of knowledge until you have gone through trials and struggles, and until you are in situations where you have to implement that patience and overcome what you desire. So this is something very important. And Imam Bukhari Taala was exposed to this at the age of 16. That he traveled with his mother for Hajj and he stayed with the scholars of Hijaz for approximately two years until he returned to his family. So now continuing the discussion with Muhammad ibn Abi Hatim. He says, then at the age of 18, I wrote my first book. Now imagine that. At the age of 10, he started memorizing books. At the age of 16, he had studied with the scholars of his locality and his area, and then went to the lands of Hijaz and studied with them as well. And now at the age of 18, he's writing a tarikh al-kabir. Imam al-Bukhari has written numerous books. Uh, from them, four are the most famous of them. You have his Al-Jami' al-Sahih, which is his Sahih al-Bukhari. Then you have Al-Tariq al-Kabir. Now, Al-Tariq al-Kabir is a book of history, but it's not how we understand history. When you study history in the West, they'll just give you a summary of what took place, a summary of the events, and tell you how things happened. But when you look at the books of history in Islam, especially amongst the early generations, they used to narrate history just like they used to narrate the hadith of the Prophet So they would say, Haddathana fulan, Haddathana fulan, Haddathana fulan. Meaning that so-and-so narrated to me, so-and-so narrated to me, and so-and-so narrated to me, that they saw such and such happen. So it was a very meticulous and articulate way of preserving history. And this is what Imam al-Bukhari did when he wrote his Tariq al-Kabir. In it, he compiled the names of all the companions and who the children were. And in it, he compiled all the events, or all the major historical events that took place in their times. And one of the things he did in this uh, Tariq al-Kabir is that he mentioned the name, he used to criticize the narrators of the hadith. That as we know in our times, not 
everyone is at the same level of reliability. Something that, let's just say, you know, a scholar tells you doesn't hold the same weight as something you know, your elementary school teacher tells you the, about Islam, let's just say. Now, the, educate, the sheikh or the scholar, he's educated, he spent his whole life studying this. Whereas your elementary school teacher, when she talks about Islam, you know, she probably just read one textbook before she actually started giving you the dust. So the level of certainty obtained in understanding this knowledge is at a higher degree when you take it from a sheikh in comparison to your elementary school teacher. So now, what Imam al-Bukhari did, and how we're relating this to the point is, that when he mentioned these points of history, and when he mentioned the stories, we mentioned that he mentioned it, he re, uh, mentioned them in Sanawa in such a way that the hadith were preserved as well, meaning that it was through a chain of narrators. So if in the story there's a narrator who is weak, he would mention that, you know, so-and-so is weak. And if there was a narrator who was of a very high level, the likes of an awza'i or a Zuhri or Imam Malik or Imam Ahmed, he would mention something about them as well, meaning that he was an Imam of Hadith or that he was a very reliable narrator. So Imam al-Bukhari compiled this masterpiece at the age of 18. So that was the second famous book that Imam al-Bukhari wrote. The third famous book that Imam al-Bukhari compiled was Al-Adab al-Mufrad. And this book Al-Adab al-Mufrad, in it he compiled a book of etiquettes, meaning that anything that he could find from the Prophet and the companions pertaining to etiquettes of eating and drinking and sleeping and how to be with the people, Imam al-Bukhari put it in this book and he called it Al-Adab al-Mufrad. And the fourth book uh, which um, attained you know, a level of famousness, I guess you could say, was Khalq Af'al Ibad or the creation of the actions of mankind. Now, the story behind this book is very, very interesting. That as we will see uh, towards the ending of the life of Imam al-Bukhari, there was a great fitna going on in which the people were testing other people. And this was pertaining to, was the Qur'an, the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, something created or something not created. Obviously it's a very deep um, issue which we won't get into too much detail. But the opinion of Ahl Sunnah and all the scholars of the past and present who follow the way of the Sahaba عنهم, have agreed that the Quran is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and is something uncreated. And over time this methodology was not preserved but rather the Mu'tazili school of thought uh, came into power in the Khilafah. So when the Mu'tazili school of thought came into the Khilafah, they were against this, saying that the Quran is not the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or sorry, the Quran is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but not the way we understand it, meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't speak it. It is something created. It is from the understanding of Jibreel and from the understanding of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And this is something which is inaccurate. So now when this Khilafah took power, 
they started promoting and propagating this methodology of the Quran being created. And it hit its peak during the time of Imam Ahmad. And this is why, you know, the famous fitna that Imam Ahmad went to, went through before his death was the fitna of the Khalq al-Quran or the creation of the Quran. And likewise, it continued to progress until the time of Imam al-Bukhari. Imam al-Bukhari passed away in 256, as we'll get to inshallah. And Imam Ahmad uh, passed away in 241. So there's a difference of 15 years in between them. So now, as you will notice that in any science or in any field, things always progress. And like this fitna that took place, it progressed as well. Before, it was just amongst the Mu'tazila and the scholars of Ahl-Sunnah. But then it progressed into the scholars of Ahl-Sunnah itself. That they differed, that is it okay to say that my recitation of the Qur'an is created or is one not allowed to say this as well. So Imam al-Bukhari, he was one day asked that what did you say about the recitation of the Qur'an? Is it created or is it not created? To which Imam al-Bukhari said that my recitation of the Qur'an is created but that which is recited is not created. And then he wrote this famous book called Khalq of Alul Ibad, meaning that every single action that we do as humans, it is created. And again, this is related to Qadr. Uh, we won't get into too much detail of it. But to take a brief understanding of how this is possible. You know, how does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create me holding the cup? Or how does He create me holding the pen? The concept of creation with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in two ways depending on how you're looking at it. That which He does with a wasita, or meaning that which He does with intermediary, and that which He does without an intermediary. So you take the example of Adam alayhi salam. Adam alayhi salam, he didn't have any parents, right? There was no one before Adam alayhi salam in terms of human beings. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created him without any parents, meaning that there was no intermediary. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created him with his own two hands as he mentions in the Quran. Now each and every one of us, we all submit to the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us. But how did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create us? It was with a wasata or with an intermediary, meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed us with parents, our parents got together and we were a result of that act. So we were created with an intermediary. So this is uh, just a brief understanding of how the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes place. So likewise, if you will agree that we came through an intermediary, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, created this movement of this pen through me. Meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He has the ability to move this pen. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose out of His divine wisdom to make the movement of this pen through me. So thus Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the movement of the pen as well, uh, through an intermediary. Again, it's a very complicated subject, it requires a lot of understanding and a lot of details, but this is just a uh, brief breakdown of it. So now, as we were mentioning the life of Imam Bukhari, this discussion with Muhammad ibn Abi Hatim, it continues. And Muhammad ibn Abi Hatim, he asks him, what was it, uh, sorry, who were the people who influenced you the most? And who were the people whom you held in high esteem? Now, the great scholars that Imam al-Bukhari studied with were many. Uh, at the end of the discussion with Muhammad ibn Abi Hatim, he mentions that I studied with 1,080 scholars of hadith. And 
all of them said that Iman is statement and speech and it increases and decreases. Now the latter part of it is pertaining to Aqidah, but let us focus on the first part of the statement where he said, I studied with 1,080 scholars of Hadith. Meaning that putting the scholars of Tafsir aside, putting the scholars of Aqidah aside, putting the scholars of Fiqh aside, just with the scholars of Hadith, he studied with 1,080 of them. So from the prolific scholars that he studied with, and again these are biographies that we should all study and we should all take the time to learn and all and take the time to emulate their ways as well. They were the likes of Imam Ahmad, who died in 241. He established his own madhab, is very, very well known and renowned. There are books written about him uh, in his biography and his biography as well. Then you have the likes of Yahya ibn Ma'in, another great scholar of hadith. And you have Ali ibn al-Madini, another great scholar of hadith. But the person who influenced him or had the greatest influence him, influence over him, and even though Imam al-Bukhari doesn't state this, but you can see it in his way of writing and in his way of speaking, and even the high esteem that he held him in was by a scholar by the name of Ishaq ibn Rahawayh. Now Ishaq ibn Rahawayh, the interesting story with him is that just like the other four Imams as we know them, Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Imam al-Shafi'i, and Imam Ahmad rahimahumullah ta'ala, he had a madhab of his own. He was one of the scholars who had reached such a high level and used to teach the people to such a degree that he eventually established his own madhab. But due to you know his madhab not being spread um, amongst those people who would carry it on and to other reasons as well, his madhab doesn't exist in our times today. So Ishaq ibn Rahawayh, this great imam of hadith and an imam of fiqh and practically any other science you can think of had a great influence over Imam al-Bukhari to such a degree that Ishaq ibn Rahawayh was one day sitting and he said, you know, it would be nice if someone took the time to compile a book of Sahih Ahadith only. Now this is just a thought that Ishaq ibn Rahawayh had. He said that it would be nice if someone would take the time to compile all the Sahih Ahadith or compile a book of just Sahih Ahadith. So Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala held this scholar in such great esteem and revered him so much that he didn't want this wish of his to go unfulfilled. So he took it upon himself to compile his sahih. So thus we see the great esteem that Imam al-Bukhari held him in. Now another point to, uh, to delve upon over here is the statement of Imam al-Bukhari that he studied with 1,080 different scholars of hadith. Now what is the benefit of that? One of the benefits that we can derive from this fact is that when you study with different scholars, you will notice that they have different specialities. They have different approaches and different understandings of things. And this is what we learn from the diversity of our scholars. That you will notice and pick up something from one scholar which you won't find in another scholar. And you will learn something from another scholar which you will not find in another scholar. Now learning is not just about the facts that they teach you, but learning is also in the way they deal with people, and also in the way they deal with questions, and also in the way they deal with scenarios. 
Now you take a famous example that Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala mentions about Imam Ahmad. He mentions that 50,000 people used to come to the halaqat or the lectures of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah ta'ala. And out of this 50,000, only 5,000 of them would be writing. Only 5,000 of them would be writing. The rest of them were there to learn from the adab and the akhlaq of Imam Ahmad. So when people came to learn from these great scholars, they didn't just come to learn facts about Islam and different rulings of Islam, but rather they came to learn how to interact with the people and how to treat the people and how to deal with people. So 45,000 people came to learn to come, came to learn this from Imam Ahmad, let alone all of the other knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had blessed Imam Ahmad with. So this was point number one that we learned from the diversity of scholars. Point number two is that you will notice that as human beings, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created within us deficiencies. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will sometimes cause us to have a lapse in memory or will sometimes cause us to misunderstand things. And this is just to show the perfection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is perfect in each and every way. And he shows this through the deficiencies of mankind. That the creator is perfect, yet the creation has its deficiencies and is imperfect in one way. And this is one of the benefits of studying with various scholars is that you know you will come across similar issues. You know, let's just take the example of reading the Quran. Does one need wudu for it or not? You will find one scholar say that yes, there is consensus that you need wudu to recite, to touch the, the Quran and recite it. Whereas you will find another scholar say, no, the correct opinion is that you do not need wudu to touch the Quran and recite it. So through the diversity of scholars, you make yourself open to, difference, uh, to a difference of opinions and you open your mind to differences. Whereas if you just stick with one scholar throughout time, even though you may get all of his knowledge, you will not be exposed to different understandings and different approaches and you will become a person who is very rigid. So this shows the importance of going to different scholars and learning from them. Now even though you may not learn, uh, you, even though you may not learn something new from this individual, you should always take uh, the time to study with a person whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed with knowledge. And this is seen from some of the famous statements of our Salaf or our predecessors that they used to say that you will not be a true alim until you've done three things. And this was pertaining to seeking knowledge. That you have sought knowledge with those who are more knowledgeable than you. And you have sought knowledge with those who are equal to you. And you have sought knowledge with those who are below you. Now, if you look at the wisdom behind this, you may find this something very profound. That in this statement, you seek knowledge with those who are more knowledgeable than you. Meaning that you humble yourself to knowledge and recognize the fact that even though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may have given you some knowledge, that there are people who are more knowledgeable than you. So you become humble to them and you become humble to knowledge. And again, this is something very interesting that Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha learned from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. She said, that when the ayah in Surah Yusuf was revealed, that on top of every possessor of knowledge is the most knowledgeable, is Al-Alim, meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. She said, with this 
with the revelation of this ayah, we were ordered to put people in their proper places. Meaning that you recognize the level of the people, that there are people who are more knowledgeable than you. And the most knowledgeable, the most knowledgeable above all of them is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So humble yourself in front of Him the most. Because He knows the innermost details of what you do, and the innermost details of what you have said, and what you think. And likewise, He knows that which you do openly as well. So that is point number one, that you recognize those people who are more knowledgeable than you and you humble yourselves in front of them and you learn from them. Then likewise, those people who are at the same level of you, what do we understand and benefit from this? A similar point, meaning that there are people who are at the same level of you as you, meaning that there are other people who have studied similar sciences and who have gone to similar institutes and studied similar knowledge. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put them at a similar level to you. And this is something that we saw even in the time of Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala that he had Imam Muslim as a companion and likewise he had Imam al-Tirmidhi as a companion. Now these people were contemporaries of Imam al-Bukhari. They died four or five or ten years after him yet Imam al-Bukhari still narrated from them and he learned from them to such a degree that he said to Imam al-Tirmidhi that I have benefited from you just as much as you have benefited from me. Now, this is something interesting to note because Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala, he doesn't narrate from Imam al-Tirmidhi in a sahih. Whereas, if you look at the sunan or the compilation of Imam al-Tirmidhi, you will see that so more than often does Imam al-Tirmidhi narrate from Imam al-Bukhari. So the people asked him, you know, when you made the statement to Imam al-Tirmidhi that you benefited from him just as much as he benefited from you, what did you mean by this? To which Imam al-Bukhari he said that I benefited from the zuhud and the wara of Imam al-Tirmidhi. That I benefited from the asceticism and I benefited from the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Imam al-Tirmidhi had. So he learned to be humble. He learned to be a person who didn't love the dunya to a extensive degree. So again, getting back to our point at hand, that in order to become an alim, you will likewise have to seek knowledge with those people who are at the same level as you. That you will learn from them, they will learn from you. You benefit, you memorize, and you remind one another. And likewise, the last point is that you seek knowledge with those people who are a lower level than you. Meaning that you show uh, an exemplary status in front of them. Meaning that you show that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed you with knowledge and you remind them of where they may be incorrect. And likewise, you're reminded by what they have to say. And again, this is another lesson in being humble. A lot of times we may think that, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed us with so much knowledge. We've grown our beards, we've raised our pants, we're praying our qiyam al-layl. And now when our parents speak about Islam, that, oh, you're old, you know, you didn't learn anything about Islam. We're very uh, condescending towards them. We don't hold them in the high esteem that we should, thinking that, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave us more knowledge than He gave them. But this is not a methodology that a Muslim should have, but rather He looks up to anyone whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed with knowledge. And He reveres them and He holds them in high standards, especially one's parents. So next time when our parents say something about Islam, don't belittle them, but rather hear what they have to say. If they're correct, you encourage them to study more. If they're incorrect, here's the perfect opportunity to guide them to that which is correct. So that was in the life of Imam al-Bukhari up until the age of 18. 
So we mentioned some of the scholars whom Imam al-Bukhari uh, had studied with. We mentioned the likes of Imam Ahmed and Ali ibn al-Madini and Yahya ibn al-Ma'in and more specifically Ishaq ibn al-Rahawi. Now how about the students of Imam al-Bukhari? Likewise, just as Imam al-Bukhari mentioned and um, narrated from 1,080 people, Imam al-Dhahabi, he mentions that 40,000 different people narrated from Imam al-Bukhari. Meaning that 40,000 different people narrated a hadith from Imam al-Bukhari. Now, before proceeding on, another important point which we need to dwell upon is where am I getting these facts and statistics from? You know, a lot of times people will tell stories, but we don't know where, we get, where they get their stories from. When studying the life of Imam al-Bukhari, there are two main sources that a person needs to refer to. The first of them is this book over here, Sira Alam al-Nubala by Imam al-Zahabi. Now, what Imam al-Zahabi did in this book is he compiled the biographies of all the famous people who lived from the time of the Prophet ﷺ up until his time. Meaning that he included the companions and every other single uh, famous person that, uh, may, that may have become known uh, between those times. So, the way he categorized this book is that he categorized it into tabaqat or different levels. That it's not really generations, but levels in terms of time frames of where they lived. So Imam al-Bukhari is mentioned in the 12th tabaqa. So if you go to the 12th volume, this is where Imam al-Bukhari is mentioned. So this is a very important reference point, not only for Imam al-Bukhari specifically, but generally when you want to study the biographies of any great Imam, you refer to this book, Sir Alam al-Nubala. Another important reference point for the life of Imam al-Bukhari is the first volume of Fathul Bari. As we mentioned, Sahih al-Bukhari was an extensive piece of work. That in it he compiled Sahih hadith and it is held in high esteem amongst the Muslims and more specifically amongst the scholars. So when the scholars saw this great and magnificent piece of work by Imam al-Bukhari, they took it upon themselves to explain this book. And one of the greatest explanations ever written for any book of hadith is Fathul Bari by Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani. And what Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani did was that in the very beginning of his explanation, he compiled what he referred to by himself as Hadyu Sari, or the guidance of the traveler. And in this he mentioned the biography of Imam al-Bukhari and certain points of benefit uh, pertaining to his book. So these are two important reference points. And likewise, you know, for those of you who have been blessed with the Arabic language, you should go back to these books and uh, learn for yourselves and remind yourselves of that which is being said today. So these are two main reference points uh, where the, where I'd say 99% of my information is coming from. So this is the life of Imam al-Bukhari and we mentioned his two uh, teachers and now we were just getting to his students. Now as for his students, we mentioned that uh, Imam al-Zahabi mentions in Sirah al-Nubala that 40,000 people narrated a hadith from Imam al-Bukhari. The most prolific of them was Imam Muslim, the author and compiler of Sahih Muslim. And from them you also have Imam al-Tirmidhi, Abu Isa Muhammad ibn Isa al-Tirmidhi. And likewise you have Abu Abdurrahman al-Nasai, the compiler of the Sunan. So you see that three out of the famous six books 
their authors were students of Imam al-Bukhari. So this is the great influence he had over them. And likewise, there are other famous scholars as well, the likes of uh, Muhammad ibn Khuzayma and Abu Bakr ibn Abi Dunya. These are, you know, Imam al-Bukhari had a lot of famous students. And this is another interesting impo uh, uh, and important point to delve upon is that one of the characteristics of an alim is that he doesn't keep knowledge to himself. He is always enthusiastic to share his knowledge with his students. That whenever he gets an opportunity, he is reminding the people. And whenever he gets an opportunity, he is teaching the people. And whenever he gets an opportunity, he is guiding the people to some sort of good or forbidding them from some sort of wrong. And you notice that the greatest of scholars usually had the greatest of students. From the Prophet ﷺ, you had Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali, and the rest of the Sahaba. The best of mankind from the Prophet ﷺ and onward, with consensus, no doubt about it. And then from the likes of Imam al-Bukhari, you had Imam Muslim, Imam al-Tirmidhi, Imam al-Nasa'i, Ibn Khuzayma, and other Imams as well. Then you look at the likes of Ibn Taymiyyah ta'ala. You have Ibn al-Qayyim, you have Ibn Kathir, you have Ibn Athir, you have Imam al-Zahab, you have Ibn Rajab. All of these people influenced by Ibn Taymiyyah. So one of the signs again of great scholarship is developing good students as well. But again, we keep mentioning that knowledge is not, is not just about giving facts and information to individuals, but rather it is nurturing the people and developing them and bringing them up in such a way that they likewise will go on to spread the message that you have taught them. This is what true scholarship is about. It is not just about spreading facts and information alone. Now, as it is getting close to our time to end, let us just skip forth and get to the death of Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala. Now the death of Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala is indeed a very very sad one. As we mentioned, as we mentioned that when Imam al-Bukhari lived, the fitna of the Khalq al-Qur'an or the creation of the Qur'an was reaching its peak amongst the scholars of the Sunnah. That they were testing and trying each other with this statement. That they would go and ask, what is your opinion on the recitation of the Qur'an? Or what is your opinion on the lafth of the Qur'an? Is it something created or is it something not created? So now, the methodology of the earlier scholars, meaning Imam Ahmad and Yahya ibn Ma'in, or just stick to Imam Ahmad, was that they would stick to the fact and say that the Qur'an is not created, it is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they wouldn't dwell any further than that. Whereas Imam al-Bukhari, he took it to the next step. He would say that the Qur'an is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and my recitation of the Qur'an is created, but those words that I speak are not created. So when the scholars heard this, they were dumbfounded. They were like, this is not the methodology that we were brought up upon by Imam Ahmad. So they likewise, when they heard this, they abandoned Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala. Now in our times, it may not make much sense. But looking at, looking, at it, looking at it from a time frame, where the sunnah is prevalent, meaning that of Islam are everywhere. Before one man to bring what they considered a deviancy at the time was something huge. And they had the luxury of abandoning this man, hoping that he would return to guidance and hoping that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would bring him back to the truth. And this is what the point was of abandoning the people back then. 
Whereas this concept of abandoning people and making hajj of people, it's not something which is easily, as easily applicable in our times today. That when someone makes a mistake, we don't have the luxury of abandoning them. But rather, it is upon us to guide them and remind them and stick to them. Because in our times, if you abandon people, more than likely they will go even more astray. And this is in one of two ways. That they will go and start learning from people of deviance. And at the same time, they will start disliking the people of the truth as well. So we don't have that luxury of abandoning people. Whereas the, at the time of Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala, they had that luxury. The sunnah was prevalent and they could abandon people and hope that they would come back to the truth. Because the people of deviance weren't that many and they were well known and people would not go and study with them. So when Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala came with this new statement that the Quran is not created, it is the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that which I recite, or sorry, my, my recitation of the Quran is created, but the words which I recite are not created. People were dumbfounded. They were like, this great Imam has deviated. And again, there were certain individuals who were jealous of Imam al-Bukhari. And let us you know, get into this into a bit more detail. There was a great scholar of hadith in Nisapur uh, by the name of Yahya al-Zuhali. He was a great imam of hadith. Uh, again, maybe at the likes of Imam al-Bukhari and Imam Ahmed and other than them. He had a son who was named Muhammad ibn Yahya al-Zuhali, who was a contemporary of Imam al-Bukhari. And Muhammad ibn Yahya al-Zuhali, being a contemporary of Imam al-Bukhari, he would try to compete with Imam al-Bukhari as much as he could. And Imam al-Zahabi mentions this in Sirah that Muhammad ibn Yahya was always competing with Imam al-Bukhari. And it is natural when you compete with someone that at times you will get jealous of them as well. So you will mention something bad about them. So Muhammad ibn Yahya al-Zuhali, when this fitna happened and it reached its peak, that Imam al-Bukhari was saying this new statement which the scholars of the past did not say, he said, now is my time to take Bukhari down. Now is my time to shine amongst the scholars of hadith. So he took the statement of Bukhari and what he misinterpreted it as and spread it amongst the people. So in his halaqat, that Muhammad ibn Yahya had his own halaqat, he took it and he spread the statement and said that Imam al-Bukhari has deviated, so abandon him. So slowly, slowly but surely, the people eventually started abandoning Imam al-Bukhari to such a degree that Imam al-Bukhari says that only two people were left with me from the Tulab al-Ilm and from the Shiyukh, from the scholars and from the students of knowledge, only two people remained with him. From them were Muslim ibn Hajjaj or Imam Muslim, the author of the Sahih. And from them was Muhammad ibn Aslam, another student of knowledge. These are the only two people who stuck by Imam al-Bukhari at this time. So now you can imagine, at one point in time, you're such a great Imam that 40,000 people are narrating a hadith from you. That you reach such a level where you only have two people left at your feet. And people are saying that you have deviated. And people are not speaking to you and not replying to your salams. And people are not replying to your salams. And it reaches that level. You can imagine the effect it has on you. You will become disheartened, you will become upset, you will become 
You know, you'll just uh, lose your enthusiasm. You'll lose all motivation. So this is what happened with Imam al-Bukhari. That, you know, after he had reached such a level of scholarship and he had benefited the Ummah with so much knowledge and had done so much for the Ummah, they eventually abandoned him. So just imagine how Imam al-Bukhari feels. So now, as Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala is getting older and he died at the age of 62, one of his servants says that Imam al-Bukhari towards the end of his life, he had some family members and relatives and close friends in Samarqand. Now these relatives and family members, they're not students of knowledge and they're not scholars. So they invited him to come and visit them. So Imam al-Bukhari on his way to Samarqand, he stops off in a village called Khartanak. And in Khartanak, he likewise had a relative whom he stayed with and uh, descended in his home as well. So the servant over there, he's mentioning how it is the month of Ramadan. And Imam al-Bukhari ta'ala, is standing in the night prayer. And he keeps on making dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying, you know, and subhanAllah this is really really sad to think that a person at the, the likes of Imam al-Bukhari is forced into such a situation where he's forced to make this dua. He says, Allahumma qad daqat alayya al-ardu bima rahubat faqbidni ilayk. That, oh Allah, as vast as you have made this earth, it is becoming constrained and congested upon me. So take me back to you. And Imam, the likes of Imam al-Bukhari, is going through so much pain and suffering. He's been abandoned by all of his friends and companions. Anyone he ever looked up to, anyone he ever honored and respected, had eventually betrayed him and left him. And he was forced into making this dua, that, Oh Allah, as vast as this earth is, it has become congested and constrained upon me, so take me back to you. So the servant over here, he mentions that the month didn't end, except that Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala, passed away. And Imam al-Bukhari passed away on the first night of Shawwal. He died on the night of Eid al-Fitr. That within 12 days, Imam al-Bukhari, in some narrations, passed away after making this dua. Now, there are so many lessons that we can learn from this particular scenario and this story, but we'll restrict ourselves to the most important of them. First of all, the statement of scholars Two minutes? Okay, khalas, in two minutes, we'll try to get as many benefits as we can. That the statements of scholars upon other scholars should not be accepted unrestrictedly. That sometimes a scholar will speak about another scholar, one should not take it unrestrictedly, but rather take it with a grain of salt, especially if they are contemporaries. As we see in the story, sometimes scholars may get jealous of other scholars, sometimes there may be a misinterpretation of what a scholar has said. This is something to keep in mind, that in our times, there has been a lot of talk about this scholar said something about this scholar, and this scholar said something about it, another scholar, they should all be accepted with a grain of salt. That look into the situation for yourselves. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed you with minds and intellects, so make use of them. Look at the facts and then judge individuals by them, but and not by what other people say about them. Another scenario is that you know, no matter how much Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala may bless you with knowledge, that 
your divine and eventual return will be to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you need to remember that any situation that you are in, the only way out of it is through Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That a lot of people may think that Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala is committing a form of suicide or is doing something which is wrong. But rather this is something that he learned from his very own sahih. That he mentions the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that when fitna, that if fitna, if fitna is to become rampant, then take me back to you, غَيْرَ maftunin. That someone who hasn't been trialed or tribulated. So this is what Imam al-Bukhari is doing. That in time of adversity, he turns to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And lastly, I think my last minute is coming to an end, is the form of justice. Now this scholar by the name of Muhammad ibn Yahya al-Zuhli, Imam, Imam Muslim, he returned all of his hadith back to him. That he wrote nine books of hadith from Muhammad ibn Yahya al-Zuhli, and he he sent all those nine books back to Muhammad ibn Yahya al-Zuhri saying that, you know, you have done an injustice against my Shaykh. Whereas you look at the justice of Imam al-Bukhari, that even though this man wronged him and accused him of something which is inaccurate, uh, Imam al-Bukhari still narrates from him under his kunya, that he found a hadith which he couldn't find with any.